0: The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at www.overlandpark.cc. Good to have you here. I want to welcome you if it's your first time. I hope that uh, you enjoy yourself and hope that you feel like you found a a place that you can call home and and become spiritual family with us. Uh, Man, how great is it to have three days of sunshine? Come on, Lord, thank you for that. Uh, I just feel better, and I'm getting a little adjusted to the time change. That's always rough Uh, to get things, your rhythms reestablished after the uh, change in time. And, and, you know, tonight, the selection committee makes the announcement of the 64 teams that make it in to the NCAA tournament. Any fans in here of that? Yeah. Yeah, come on, man. So 64 teams tonight. Now... In 2014, Warren Buffett had a little challenge, you know, the, the billionaire. He said, if you can complete a perfect bracket, <laughs> you win billion. You a billion dollars. You could take it in a lump sum or a million dollars a year for the rest of your life, I think is what the deal was. And so... Uh, Several, You know, 15, 15 million people could take the challenge, and no one won. Um, he still offers the challenge to all 400,000 of his employees. And so if you could, if you could be on his staff somewhere at one of his companies, um, and you can complete that bracket perfectly, uh, you'll win a billion dollars. Now, what if I told you that I knew someone who could do that? And what if I even went as far as to say, not only do I know someone who could do that, what if I told you that in the year 1600, a guy would tell us and he would predict that there would be a country called the United States of America. And it would be made up of 50 states and long about the 1890s, a guy by the name of James Naismith would invent a game called basketball, and he would later move to Kansas and found the basketball program, and that this sport would become incredibly popular, and there would be divisions, and all of these 50 states would have schools, and and there was a top division, and there would be a tournament. Now remember, I'm telling you this, the guy is telling us in 1600 that this would happen. And he says that this this tournament would just blow up and become extremely popular. They would call it March Madness, and there would be 64 teams in it. And in 2019, those 64 teams would be, and he gave us all 64 teams. And then he gave us the round of 32, then the uh, Sweet 16, the Elite Eight, the Final Four. And he said to us, this is who the champion will be in 2019 you'd say, you're crazy. Like, it's not possible. This is not possible for somebody to be that detailed and give us that much uh, of an account of what could happen. Now, I say all of that to set up what I'm going to give you today as evidence that the Bible is the Word of God, okay? We're going to look at prophecy. Now, we, we, we've we been studying this whole idea that of solo scriptura, like the Bible is Like, like you look at the Bible and you understand this term solo scriptura. It is that the Bible teaches us everything we need to know in order to be saved from our sin and 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 escape the wrath of God. It tells us everything we need to know in order to be saved. It tells us everything that we need to know in order to live our lives in a way that we can bring glory to God. And that, no more, no less, is what solo scriptura means. And so the the, the church, our church's position is we'll never expect you to do more than the Bible teaches you, and we'll never challenge you to do less than what the Bible teaches you. And so we, we've, I've established, and I'm intentionally going back over this week after week, there are three ways to approach the Bible, only three ways. One, it is the Word of God. Like, we look at it and go, man, I believe the Bible is the Word of God itself. The second way is that it is the Word of man. Men wrote it, and that's what it is. And then the third way is that it is both um, the Word of God and the Word of man. Now, our church's position is the historic evangelical Christian position that it is the Word of God. Like, for like, since the early church, that's what people have believed. Even in the time of the apostles, when the New Testament was being written, they re- referred to the holy scriptures and equated each other's writings as such. And so our position is we believe it is the Word of God. The dangerous one is number three, that it is the Word of God and the Word of man. And what makes that so dangerous is that it requires scholarship to tell us which parts of the Bible are the Word of God and which parts are the Word of man. So it elevates the scholar to the position of God as he relies on education to tell us which ones we are to believe and follow and which parts of the Bible we are not to believe and follow. And that's, that's just absurd if you stop and think about it. Like that's, that's shifting all the time. Whatever culture is demanding, that's where the scholar likely is going to end up. Is because he's going to define it by what the culture has taught him. And he's going to use education and academia to arrive at a conclusion and tell people how they now shall live. And we look at it and go, no, man, like if Jesus, if God could raise Jesus from the dead and do a miracle like that, he could miraculously preserve the word of God in the Bible and give us what we need in order to follow him, trust him, and know what it means to be saved. And so we've looked at in week one, canonization, a very important term. What does it mean? Uh, uh, And you'll have to go back and watch that if you weren't here in week one, but it's how we got our 66 different books of the Bible. Uh, we talked about the reliability of it, that the Bible is a historical document. It is more than a historical document, but it is historical. And of all the ancient documents of the world, like there's not one that is more reliable and that has more evidence to support it than the Bible. So all of these things that we accept and uh, history, and we just take them, there's not near as much evidence to support them as what there is To support the Bible, I'm saying that like just based purely on you don't have to be a believer to like draw a conclusion here. Those are facts. Like that is a fact. So I'm not preaching to you at faith. If you're here and you're a little skeptical and you're trying to reason through this, that is a fact you can study for yourself. No comparison of the ancient documents of the world to how many manuscripts that we have to support the evidence of the Bible. It is historically reliable. We talked about how God speaks to us through revelation. There's general revelation, like nature, and the the animal kingdom, and all the created order. And God can speak to people through that, and he will call them. And they can begin to look and see, man, there's design behind this universe. There is a creator behind it. The more we look at it and see the intricacies of of life and the creation, things that we have to investigate. The more we can see that there is intelligent design behind this. Okay, you, you just look at stuff. You look at the complexity of your own body. You look at the complexity of your own DNA and how you're made up, and and, and the the, uh, the the soul that you are. Someone has said we are, we've kind of come to this place to where we think that we're bodies with souls, and the truth of the matter is we're souls with bodies. Like, there's there's a depth to us. So we look at that, and we can see, man, there's design behind the universe and how it all works. Um, And we can see that that's general revelation, and then we have specific revelation. God speaks to us specifically. How does he do that? He does it through history. So we look back at history, at all of the events that have taken place and, and what we know in history, and God speaks to us. And that's why the Bible is so important, because it is a written account of the historical record of a group of people that God has claimed are the chosen people of God, and he's showing us what he is like in this written account. So when we begin to attack the Word and say that it is something other than the Word of God, we're beginning to kind of mess with historically how God has specifically revealed himself to us so that we could even know what it means Um, to know him and serve him. And so then we uh, talked about inspiration. Okay, so all of that leads us to, I don't even care if you're here this morning and you're not a born again believer. Okay, first of all, I'd say to you, this is a safe place. Um, You come here with your questions. This is where you should be as you're trying to figure out what do you believe about this stuff. Um, the, The second thing is I would say is that this is all his, everything I've laid out just from a logical standpoint, making a defense for the Bible, it's like, you don't have to be a believer to know these things, okay? But then we move to what makes the Bible different from like Homer's Iliad and other ancient documents that we have. What makes it different from a history book that teaches us about George Washington and Abraham Lincoln? What makes it different if it is a historical account? What makes it different is the doctrine or the teaching of inspiration. And so as we look at the Bible, we see that the Bible teaches that it is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. Okay, so I I taught you in that week that inspiration um, is not the same as a a mental stimulation that someone might experience to have a burst of creativity where they write a song, okay? Okay. But inspiration, the word behind it means God breathed. And so God used different men throughout history and he supernaturally ensured that through their personalities, God breathed, he was behind what they wrote and he ensured that what he wanted written in the historical record that would serve as specific revelation to humanity about what he was like would be written by these men. And so we go, man, that how can you believe that? Just just pause for a minute, okay? We believe that a dead guy rose from the dead. Like that's our fundamental belief in who who we are as followers of Jesus is that a man was dead for 3 days and rose from the dead. That is a supernatural mi- miracle, the hand of God at work in creation. And so to believe that that, that, that the Lord could do something like that, it is not a difficult thing to believe that the Lord could be behind the writing of the Word of God so that we could know who He is and what it is that we're supposed to do in order to know Him and follow Him. And so it's not a, it's not a big deal for the Lord to be able to do that if God does, in fact, exist as I believe that He does. And so we talked about how, man, the the Word is God-breathed. And then we went into regeneration. Now, what does that mean? That means that this God that we find written about in this historical account of the Bible, these 66 books that were um, inspired and God breathed by God that he used different men to write them as we learn about this God and he draws us unto himself through his love and we respond, we go from a place of spiritual deadness to a place of spiritual life. So the lights come on in the, in the room of our, our, our minds, if you will. So we're able to understand it not only as a historical book, but now it becomes a living book. Because the one who wrote it and is behind the writing of it is the one who has breathed life into us. So as God has breathed life into his word, in order for a person to really grasp what it's teaching, God must breathe life into the individual. The two have harmony and we see God at work in the human and the soul is regenerated. It comes to spiritual life. I'm no longer an enemy of God, but now I am in fellowship with God. We call this being born again. I'm saved from my sins, and my understanding of the Word is shifted. So all of a sudden, like, if you read the Bible and you're still saying, man, I don't get it, the question you ought to be asking is, has my soul been regenerated? Do I know the Lord? Because if you don't know it beyond mere historical, um, what it is historically, then the chances are you are dead spiritually. And, and the Lord needs to do a work in your life. Because when he does a work in your life, man, and, and you, you see what he has done, you cannot get enough of the word. Like you just, you want more and more and more and more of it, Okay because it is something that you see that has brought life to you which you didn't have before something that you know that is supernatural that it didn't exist around you before but now is around you now that is moving in and through you and enabling you to see life completely different than you did before now um w- when we when we when we think about that then we we realize okay this is what makes the person who is a follower of Jesus different than a person who looks at the Bible just trying to learn knowledge from it. What I, want to, what I want to establish, and I'm taking great pains to do in this moment, is that Christian people are not people who are ignorant people. Christians who understand and have come to spiritual life are not people who do not investigate evidence they are thinkers, as a matter of fact, some of the greatest thinkers known to humanity were followers of Jesus, okay? so we don't we don't just blindly go in the dark and say, "Oh, I'm going to choose this as my religion." That's not what happened for me. What happened for me is that the Lord did a work in my life, and I understand as i as I look at the evidence that he has left behind the specific revelation my faith continues to increase. And so a lot of times people find themselves in this place where they don't, they don't understand who God is and they just deny that he exists. And, and so we ask ourselves the question, why do people do that? Because when a person starts the journey of seriously investigating the existence of God, if they come to the conclusion that that God does exist, and the the evidence leads them to that place, then it demands, it demands that you bow the knee and everything about your life is in allegiance to that God. And so a lot of people are like, I don't even know if I want the answer to that question. So they don't study it. The sad thing is, is you can live your life that way and you can wake up at the end of your life When the body gives out, the soul will still be around. As I said just a moment ago, you are a soul with a body, not a body with a soul. So everything you're making decisions in your life from a scriptural standpoint and theologically what the word teaches, it is your soul operating within your mind and your your physical presence that is, is helping you draw these conclusions. And that soul will stand before this God of the universe in which I'm talking about today. And that soul will give an account as to what you did. And if you come to this point and you say, well, Lord, you know I did pretty good, but you remember I didn't really get into the evidence, so doesn't that excuse me? And the answer will be no. You remember that time in 2019 on St. Patrick's Day when you were standing in that church and that guy was up there and he was very passionately um, uh, teaching you about who I am and you, you failed to investigate what the evidence was? That's your judgment. He was bringing the word that I specifically revealed to you, and he was teaching you, and I was using him as I called him to this very purpose to proclaim to you the good news of the gospel. And you did nothing with it. And so it is your responsibility. It is the the whole brunt of what your existence now is is totally wrapped up in that decision that you made to deny that I existed. And so I look at all of this and I say, man, I'm setting all of this up and we're going to look at prophecy today. And you know what? I don't care if we spend a little bit more time. Like I'm just done. Like the Lord has been, man, he's been stirring in my heart. And I'm I'm tired. Like, Like I'm tired of looking at churches and I don't even care how big they are. I'm tired of looking at churches and going, where is the power of the Almighty God and the people who are filling that church? I'm tired of even looking at my own church and going, where is the power and authority of God rolling through the believers as it rolls through the believers in the New Testament? What is wrong? What is wrong with the world today? It is so upside down, it is so jacked up. Like people, all we do is argue. All we do is fight this position, that position, and I I see no hope from either side because the lines have clearly been drawn, and they're, they're political lines, but I see no hope for the world until eventually somebody somewhere says, I believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he was, and he is worthy of my entire being. All of my allegiance. My life is not about what I do for a living. My life is not about how many possessions I possess. That my life is not about the experiences I have or or the places I'm able to go or the things that I'm able to provide about my kids. As a matter of fact, my life is not even about my kids. And what you should all know is I love you dearly. But I love none of you more than I love Jesus. None of you. And that's The only thing that is helping me be the father that I am. And Jesus said, if you do not love me more than you do your father and your mother and your sister and your brother, you cannot be my disciple. That's what Jesus said. And so there is an allegiance there. Now, is he wanting me to not love my children? No. He's wanting me to realize that the cost of discipleship is that I lay my life down and I really do believe he is who he said he was. And I'm no longer in this tug of war where the enemy is just constantly pulling me and knocking me over the head and there's no victory in my life. There should be victory in our lives. People should be able to look at us and go, man, I see hope for the world and the way that person is living their lives. And so we take our time and we go through this series and we're talking about the Word of God. We're talking about everything that I believe and I've sold my life out for. And the question is, is can you trust that it is in fact the Word of God? There are two broad categories of biblical prophecy. There's messianic prophecy and there's non-messianic prophecy. So there's prophecy about things that will happen in the end times that, that possibly they don't have to do um, with the Messiah specifically, um, that, that, or they may have to do with the second coming of, his, of, of the Savior, and then there's things that um, don't apply to the Messiah. For instance, like the, the nation of Israel will be restored. It was a prophecy in the Old Testament. In 1948, they were restored after being a nation that had survived without a land, without anything. They were outside of their land. They were scattered all over. And all of a sudden, in 1948, they regathered and reformed the nation of Israel. And so that was a prophecy of the Bible. And so that's a non-Messianic prophecy. And so today, we're going to look at Messianic prophecies. There are 191 prophecies. Messianic prophecies written in the Old Testament at least, at least 400 years before the time of Jesus. 191. Now, we're not going to do all 191 today. But we're going to look at a few. I'm just going to share a few with you. And as I submit the evidence, here's where I would challenge you. As I submit the evidence, it's important to note that these are real historical events. So I'm not going to submit evidence and say, well, this is just what the Bible says. As I I talk about the things that the the Bible's saying, historically they happened. Just like historically George Washington was the president, historically the things that I'm going to share with you today, they happened in history, which serves as what? The specific revelation. And what is the Bible's purpose? To write a to teach us. But guess what? There are other writers outside of the Bible who wrote about these same things. And so these people that we talk about are not um, myths. They're not things that were created out of nowhere. They're actual historical accounts of things that happened. Now, as we look at Genesis chapter 3, we, we know that Moses wrote Genesis, okay? The prophet of God that he used and raised up And this is what he says. And and here's Exhibit A the birth of the Messiah. He says, I will put enmity in in chapter 3, verse 15. This is about the fall of man. So that we have Adam and Eve, the created humans, they disobey and rebel against God. And God is talking about um, one, the consequences of that sin for all of humanity, us included. And then he's talking about something very important. And there is a prophecy about the Messiah and what he says this is what he says i will put enmity between you and the woman meaning the source of evil that influenced the woman to do this there will be enmity between her the woman and this source of evil and between your offspring and hers and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel okay so the seed of the woman is important it's the first prophecy in the bible and it's in reference to the messiah how do we know that Because it uses the terminology, the seed of the woman. Normally, descendants all throughout the Bible are always traced back to their father. Not so here. Why? Because this would be a miraculous, supernatural conception. It would be the conception of God. So it's pointing to, even in the beginning, that there would be a virgin birth. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Isaiah 7:14 This was written by a man named Isaiah who was a Jew 700 years before the birth of Christ this is what he wrote a real person wrote this Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel That's what the prophet Isaiah said The New Testament Okay, now watch this. This is very important apologetically for giving a defense of the faith. The New Testament we have established is historically reliable. Like it is a historically reliable document. And it is inspired and affirms that Christ fulfilled this prophecy. So another guy 2,000 years ago by the name of Matthew who knew Jesus personally. This is not a fairy tale. Like a lot of people, man, you'll see, but... You'll see people on your news feeds and stuff, and they'll say, oh, man, that mythology and fairy tales. This is not a fairy tale. Matthew really did exist. You don't have to read the Bible to learn that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were real people that knew Jesus. You could get out an encyclopedia. It'll tell you that. You can look at the writings of Josephus, who was a Jewish historian that was not a Christian, and he writes about it, okay? So Matthew was a dude like you are a dude or a dudette, all right? That's important, and this is what he wrote. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew is testifying. Now, he's testifying that Jesus actually, like these are the events that surrounded Jesus' life. To fulfill this prophecy, to fulfill this prophecy, Jesus had to ensure that this would be said about him before he was born, when he was born, and after he was born. Uh, What did you do for anybody to say anything about you before you were born? Just sit on that for a second. In order for Jesus to fulfill this, he had to make sure it was said about him before he was born, when he was born, and after he was born. We have eyewitness testimonies of these events. Luke is known as like so accurate and detailed in his historical account with names of rulers and kings and, and, and provinces and areas and regions. And he goes and how does he write his, his, his document, the gospel of Luke? He goes and interviews. Luke talked to Mary. Luke gives us an account also of the birth of Christ and that it was a virgin birth. And so Luke is interviewing Mary and getting it just exactly right about what happened after Jesus rose from the dead. And she tells him the story. And so we have eyewitness testimony of these events and historical documents that confirm that these things happened as written. Now, there's no time. This is important when we look at mythology and legend. In order for mythology and legend to take place, because a lot of times you will hear people as you're trying to make a defense for your faith in the public square, you will hear people say things like, oh, that's mythology, that's legend. Come on, man. Are you serious? You really believe that? I'm like, yeah, I really do. Because it can't be mythology because mythology takes time and legends take time to develop. So so you hear about a person and it's kind of like the game, you know, you play and you say, okay, we got a line of people and I'm going to whisper something in your ear and you whisper to the next ear and you got a group of young kids there and you whisper something to them. And by the time it gets to the end, it is nothing like what you said at the beginning. But it takes time for that to happen. If you do that with two people, probably you could get a pretty good story. But if you do it with 20 people, man, by the time you get to the 20th person, you got something way out there that had nothing to do with what the person said at the beginning. And so that's how a legend works, and it takes time to develop as it changes over time. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written by contemporaries of Jesus within the 40 years of his death. That means that, like, like, people that knew him wrote about it. We're not saying that, that somebody 400 years after Jesus' time, we're saying the people that knew Jesus said this. And so that we look at that and we go, okay, man, like, there's something to hang my hat on here. There's no way it could be mythology so, because no time has passed. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephathra, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. What is this prophet saying? Well, he's saying of over 400 years before the time of Jesus where the Messiah would be born. And guess what? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And guess what? His mom and, uh, that, that was, had conceived him and, and Joseph, who had listened to the angel's call as well, had to get up and leave where they were residing and go to Bethlehem because of a census that was being taken that God had foreordained to make sure that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. How does Jesus make sure that happens? Whether you believe or not in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you must admit that this is strong evidence that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. Exhibit B, the herald of the Messiah's coming. So we have the the birth of the Messiah, we have the herald of the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, again, I submit, a real man, not a fictional character, a real man wrote this in history. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 another real man that really existed in the nation of Israel says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. John the Baptist, literally a real man, fulfilled these predictions. Okay? So Matthew, a real man in history, says in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So in one historical document written in 700 B.C., and then in another historical document written in 430 B.C., it was said that it would happen. In another historical document written in about 40-something A.D., people said that it happened. God has specifically revealed through prophetic revelation that Jesus fulfilled this specific thing, and He used eyewitnesses to write about it. And these eyewitnesses, might I submit to you as part of evidence exhibit B, these eyewitnesses were terrified and in hiding until Jesus rose from the dead and the Holy Spirit came that Jesus also prophesied would come and empowered them to remember and recall these things and begin writing this stuff and saying it. And as they saw it, it blew their minds and they came out of hiding and they turned the world upside down. And you and I are in a religious institution today called a church that we believe we are trying very hard to be a church of the New Testament, and we are a result of what these men did as they came out of hiding, supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I'm not here to teach you about self-help, about how to have a better life. I'm here to challenge you, to call you to obedience to the God of the universe. If you want to have a self-help seminar, go somewhere else. I'm talking about the creator of the universe. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. So we look at that and we go, man, how does one make that happen? How does one make uh, it happen that it's prophesied about before he comes, there will be one who heralds, prepare the way? And he's a guy that lives out in the desert. How does one do that? In fact, John the Baptist shows up on the scene doing that very thing. I would say to you, maybe he is God. Exhibit C, the suffering and death of the Messiah. The most amazing prediction in Scripture is found in Isaiah chapter 53. It's verses 1 through 12. And as we turn over there and read these verses, again, you must remember this is 700 years. Like, man, I make no apologies today for really, like, just trying to push. I'm trying to push it into your head. Like, I'm trying to push it into your heart. I'm trying to get you to see, man, this is worthy of your life. This is real stuff we're talking about. The devil has literally lulled the church uh, to to a sleep state. And that's why the entire world is so confused is because especially those of us in America who have all the blessed resources that God could provide and yet we are not giving our allegiance to this God in whom we're talking about today in a way that can bring honor and glory to him and victory into our lives where the world could look at us and go, there's a person that I know can point me to Jesus. This is what the prophet Isaiah said 700 years before the birth of Christ. Let us read it together on these 12 verses. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. This is part of the reason the Pharisees didn't follow him. See, he wasn't like this person that was like a movie star. It says in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our, our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. What is that about? It's about Jesus dying. He was cut off. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The prophet Isaiah wrote that 700 years before Jesus showed up. 700 years. What do we learn when we look at the life of Jesus? We study the historical account. Like you don't even have to read your Bible. Go read some other source and you will find That Jesus was rejected, a man of sorrow, lived a life of suffering, was despised, carried our sorrows, smitten and afflicted by God, pierced for our transgressions, wounded for our sins, suffered like a lamb, died with the wicked, was sinless, and prayed for others. Yeah, remember, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do as they were gambling for lots, which was also prophesied by the prophets that this would happen. He was crucified between the two thieves, one on the right and one on the left. Just like Isaiah said, he would die with the wicked. He was buried in the wicked's field that was, uh, uh, so in that, in, uh, with the tomb of the rich in, in Joseph's um, uh, tomb. And so we see over and over all of these prophecies that are uh, fulfilled by Jesus as the Messiah. Now, here's one thing that is fascinating because we must ask, we go, why why don't the Jews see this? And when I say the Jews, I'm talking about not Jewish people. I'm talking about like the Jewish religion, okay? How how do they miss this? Well, you, you might be surprised to know most of them have probably never read it, okay? Most of them probably don't know. And even if they have Jewish interpreters, this is, this is fascinating. Before Christ um, came, they always interpreted Isaiah chapter 53 as a messianic prophecy. But when the apostles received the Holy Spirit, and like the apostle Paul and Peter and all these guys are running around, they're taking the Old Testament scriptures and they are proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And Isaiah chapter 53 is one of their go-to chapters. And they're going through there and they're saying, look, look at what Isaiah said would happen. And you know this happened to Jesus. And at that point in time that they started making such a strong defense for the gospel and for who Christ was and his identity, the Jewish priests started interpreting this not as the suffering servant being about the Messiah, but about being the nation of Israel. Well, this is talking about the nation of Israel would suffer, not that the Messiah would suffer. So all of these hundreds of years, this is why it's so important about specific revelation in the Bible and that God gives us this, an historical account so we can look at this and see what's going on in history. So for all of these hundreds of uh, uh, or thousands of years, they had interpreted this for hundreds of years, I should say, for 700 years, they'd interpreted that this is about the Messiah. Jesus shows up, claims to be the Messiah, and then all these guys are born again and supernaturally have the power of the Spirit working in them. Jesus is resurrected, calls them to go build the church, and in going and building the church, they start reading the scriptures, and the Holy Spirit illuminates their minds, lifts the veil, and they can all of a sudden see that Isaiah, this passage in Isaiah is talking about Jesus. This passage in Malachi is talking about Jesus, and so they start going to the synagogue and making a defense, and they're trying to stop them without everything that they can. They said, if you don't stop doing this, we're going to beat you. Beat us. We don't care. And so they beat them, but they still kept preaching. And all of them kept preaching even unto the point that they cut their heads off, sawed them in two, stuck them in the uh, ribs with swords. They killed them and they would not stop. Why? Because they knew as they looked at the evidence, not only did they know him firsthand and see him and witness his miracles, they saw prophetically where he was talked about throughout the scriptures. And as they made this defense, the Jewish people were trying to maintain control. Of religion and control of people. So they shifted the definition and said, this is about the nation of Israel. And so we look at that and we go, well, how do we know that? Well, Isaiah, when he refers to the nation of Israel, if you read the book of Isaiah, he always uses um, first uh, personal uh, plural, are and we. But he always refers to the Messiah in third person singular, he, his, him. In Isaiah chapter 53, that's what he does. And so we look at that, and we say from looking at the evidence from prophecy, it is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Now, I've only looked at a few. When i go back to my illustration about March Madness. The odds of picking a perfect bracket run as high as 1 in 9.2%. Quintillion, Not good. <laughs> That's why I had a great marketing plan for Buffett. Wow. Now, why did I start going back and saying, well, what if I told you a guy could do it in the year 1600 and even tell you that the game would be invented? Because the odds, mathematicians have calculated the odds of of the prophecies lining up in one person's life. All of the biblical prophecies of the Old Testament about the Messiah, calculate, they have calculated the odds of them lining up in one person's life. The probability of 16 of those predictions is one in one quattro decillion. That's 45 zeros. You think about the bracket? And Jesus fulfilling 16 prophecies is one in one quattro decilian. If he fulfilled 48 prophecies, it would be one in 10 to the 157th power. If he only did 48. He did 191. What kind of man could do that. The Lord of heaven and earth, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the God-man. He said he was the God-man. And so we look at the evidence and we go, whoa, whoa. Now, I would say to you, trusting the evidence is not enough. But trusting the evidence and looking at the evidence can lead one to regeneration. And so the big idea of today's talk is this. I know someone who could do that. Like, I know someone who could do that. And when I say I know him, like, I know him. John used the word gnosko over and over in his gospel. And it is experiential knowledge of Jesus as the Son of God. It transforms your life. And so when you begin to see this, and you begin to understand what is going on with the Gospels, what is going on with the Old Testament, it sort of makes one a little bit excited. And the more that you understand the evidence, the more excited that you can be. And the more excited that you become, the more that you will see that life is being transformed around you. And so as we dive into that, I would submit to you, you can reasonably lay your life down And Jesus will raise you up. You can also walk out that door and choose to live your life like everyone else. And I say live your life in such a way that it denies the evidence. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What are you going to do at school What are you going to do at work? What are you going to do when you're hanging out with your friends? What kind of church do you want to be? Like, what do you want to be? Because, like, like to me, like this this is like, what? We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but I firmly believe that he is. And he has called us to be about the business of making disciples until he gets here. And so here's... um, Here's what, like, I believe the Lord wants to do something incredible here. But it's not just build a big church. There are enough of those. And there are enough of those that are really, a lot of them are pretty anemic. I mean, they do some great things. But if we look at them, do we see, like, man of the Lord is rolling through that place. Like that's the kind of church I want to be a part of because that's the kind of church I see in the New Testament. So we sing this song. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. Now, I believe that, man. I believe when I preach, I believe that there's spiritual forces at work all around me enabling me to say and proclaim what the Lord wants to proclaim. But I also believe that there are spiritual forces at work in your life. And I believe that you are some of the people that surround me. And so I would say to you, like, do you realize that the Lord has surrounded me with you? Do you realize that everything I'm talking about, like the Lord has placed me here to challenge you, his people, to do this? Are you thinking through things as if you're surrounded and the Lord has called you to go forth and move the kingdom forward? Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.cc